Our scripture reading this morning is Esther 7. Before we turn to the word, let's ask the Lord first for his blessing. Our great God, the author of this, your word, we come before you and we're grateful for your word, for your communication to us, for your revelation of yourself to us and your salvation. We come before you as we turn to your word, knowing that we need not only faith in the truthfulness of your word, but also our hearts opened by the Holy Spirit so that we may perceive your glory in it and be drawn to you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your word and speak to our hearts and help us to respond to your words with worship, with adoration, and with love. In Jesus' name, amen. So we read Esther chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking fine wine, drinking wine, after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king, to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, and who has dared to do this? And Esther said, An enemy, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. So far, the wording, the reading of God's holy word. So I remind you again that the main theme of the book of Esther is how God preserved his people, the Jews, from genocide. 
In subtle ways, the author shows how God worked behind the scenes, directing events with the goal of keeping his people from being annihilated. The great theological theme of the book of Esther is the providence of God, uh, which is the biblical teaching that nothing happens by chance. That in everything, everything that happens is under God's control. And that also includes, by way of permission, even those actions that, even sinful actions, although God is never the author of sin. We looked at that issue last time. God's providence includes events that look to us like coincidences like what we saw last time, the king not being able to to sleep. We saw that when we looked at chapter 6. In fact, the whole of chapter 6 emphasizes a number of apparent consequences which which are actually God working to fulfill his plan. But God does not only work through coincidences, he also works through his people as they self-consciously work towards their plans. And that's the focus of chapter 7. What we see in chapter 7 is God still working out his plan to save his people, but in chapter 7, Esther is much more active in the things that are happening. She's using wisdom She's using her insight, her understanding of what makes the king tick to deliver her people. God is working through her, but in this chapter, Esther herself is involved pursuing her own plan to save her people from being exterminated. Now, the reason that the Jewish people were in danger of being exterminated is that a man named Haman, a very powerful man in the kingdom, He had made a decree in the king's name that on a certain day all the Jews were to be killed. And King Ahasuerus had signed off on that decree. Haman did not have the authority to make such a decree on his own. The, the, The king was the ultimate authority behind it. But Haman had been the one driving the bill. The king had given him permission without paying a lot of attention to it himself. So Haman had told the king about a group of people within the empire who were troublemakers, according to him, and suggested that he make the problem go away by eliminating them all. And the king had given Haman the authority to do so without giving it a whole lot of thought. Now, Esther had quite a challenge before her if she was to convince King Ahasuerus to stop this genocide from happening. It was not possible in that political system to change the laws and the decrees that had been made in the king's name. And so it would not be easy to undo the harm that uh, the king and Haman had done. And the king was not likely to do something that would cause him to lose face. What the book has already shown about this king is that he's very proud. He's a very self-centered person. 
he's not likely to do something that would suggest that he had made a mistake that would make him look bad and weak or something like that. And who was Esther? Esther was a Hashuera's queen that did put her in a position <clears throat> where she had a chance at least of bringing the matter uh, before the king and try to get him to find a way to save her people. But it's not, <coughs> it's not that she had much clout or even security in her position. The last queen had been replaced because she had uh, displeased the king. As queen, Esther existed for the king's pleasure. She could be replaced at a whim. Haman was a very high-ranking official. It would cause some embarrassment for the king to try to undo what he had done. Humanly speaking, it was not likely that Esther would be able to get the king to change his mind. Humanly speaking, she was up against long odds. So she needed to be wise and insightful as she could possibly be. And the text describes her this way. She'd already invited the king and Haman to a feast earlier during which she was not yet ready to bring her request to the king. The feast described in this chapter is the second feast to which she had invited the king and Haman. And she knew that she could not just blurt out her request. The timing had to be just right. The way that she expressed it had to be just so. And she had to figure out a way of making her request that had the greatest chance of being successful with this selfish and fickle king. And so this is what she says when the king asked her to make her request. This is what she says. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. So she is respectful in the way she addresses the king. She's careful not to put any blame on the king, even though he was certainly blameworthy. She still does not tell him that she is a Jew. The time will come for that. But she'll just wait until it is the right time. And so she presents the facts in a way that are most likely to bring the king on board with her request. Someone has sold me and my people to be killed. She knows that the king is not likely to care about her people, but there is a chance that he will care about her, that he will be upset about someone planning to kill her. And once he is upset about someone planning to kill his queen, he will be more likely to be upset about someone to, to be killing and planning to kill her people. So she uses whatever value she might have to the king to place, um, to move him towards anger about the plot to kill her people. And the king does get angry. He says, who is he? 
And where is he who has dared to do this? Someone is planning to kill his queen, and he is not immune. Esther has managed to present a request in such a way as to make the king feel angry against the one who had threatened her and his people. And so finally this time for Esther to say, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Now all of this was happening by the providence of God, as much as the fact that last night the king could not sleep and all the apparent coincidences that followed. But in what happens in this part of the story, Esther is very active and is using wisdom and insight as if her life depended on it. And that illustrates for us how God's providence does not take away the need for human effort and skill and wisdom. Esther is presented here as acting in a wise and carefully thought out manner. She has planned. She has thought deeply about the approach, what kind of approach would most likely work. She has shown profound understanding of the king and what makes him tick, and she carefully comes up with an approach that was most likely to to succeed, and all of that mattered. What she does not do is sit back and say, God is going to save his people anyway. It doesn't matter much what I do or how I do it. She says nothing of that sort. We also know that God is going to do certain things because he has promised to do so. He will save his people from their sins. His kingdom will surely come. He will direct our lives for our eternal well-being if we are his people. But that never means that What we do is superfluous. It never means that we don't have to worry about acting wisely, working hard, using skill in the things that we do. Jesus will build his church, but that does not mean we should not be wise and diligent in contributing to that. Our Father will provide us everything that we need, but that does not mean that we should not work hard to provide for ourselves. God works through directing seeming consequences, but he also works through our wisdom and our skill and our efforts. And in the end, whether in success or failure, we know that God is working everything together for our good in the light of eternity. This passage shows us how God uses Esther's wisdom and insight for accomplishing his purpose, in this case, the deliverance of the Jews from annihilation. So Esther finally has finally come out with her request and has identified Haman as the one behind the decree to kill her people. The king is angry and Haman is terrified. We're told that the king rose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went to the palace garden. Clearly, he needed time to think about what he had just heard. He had a problem. He had agreed to allow Haman to make the decree in his name, and such a decree could not be rescinded. He had not known that Esther belonged to the people that he had sentenced to death. Haman had not known that either. It would be difficult for the king to get out of this predicament without a lot of embarrassment. Well, Haman helped the king decide what to do with him. While the king was outside, Haman begged Queen Esther for his life. 
The text says that Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. So Haman was desperate, but that was a huge mistake. No one was allowed to come within seven feet of any of the king's concubines, let alone the queen. And no doubt the king knew that Haman was not trying to assault the queen. But it gave the king the excuse that he needed to get rid of Haman. And so he accuses Haman of assaulting the queen. Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? So Haman is in big trouble. And it does not appear that he has a lot of friends in the room. A servant who attended the king mentions the gallows that Haman had built intending to hang Mordecai. He says, moreover, the, ga- the gallows that Haman had prepared for, has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. Cubits high. So a not-so-subtle suggestion which the king takes. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. So Haman is out of the way, but the decree still stands. The problem, the problem has to do, has to be, still has to be dealt with. The Jews are not yet in the clear. But the execution of Haman is a step in the right direction. Certainly Haman deserved to die, and no one reading the story feels sorry for Haman. But the king is really no better than Haman. The king has agreed with Haman's proposal to annihilate the Jews when Haman first made it. He had not known that he was condemning the Jews to death, but he did know that he was condemning a, a people group to death without even giving the matter much thought. <clears throat> he had told Haman <coughs> to do with them what seems good to you. So the king had given permission to Haman to destroy a whole people group without even asking who they were. He shows considerable callousness towards human life. And then the way that Esther had to approach him to to plead effectively for her people shows that he wasn't interested in justice. Had he been a just man, Esther could have been much more direct. She could have told the king that a great evil was about to take place. But instead, she had to to frame her request in such a way as to appeal to the king's self-interest. Her first request is for her own life, hoping that the king place some value on her because of his attraction to her. And then there was the whole matter of how Esther had to come before the king in the first place. The law that said that if anyone approached the king and the king did not hold out the golden scepter, that person would be killed. Queen Esther had to risk her life in order to come before the king with her request. King Ashwaras was an evil man. He was self-absorbed. Human life meant very little to him. He used women for his pleasure. He was weak and easily manipulated by advisors. And he is one example of many in history, 
and still today, there have been many kings and rulers, and rulers with other titles throughout the ages, who have been like Ahasuerus in varying degrees. One of the great causes of misery in the world through the ages have been kings and rulers and governments who ruled for their own glory, for their own profit, rather than truly seeking to serve and bless the people over whom they ruled. There have been relatively good rulers and governments by God's common grace, but a huge cause of suffering in the world has been and continues to be rulers and leaders and governments who are selfish and corrupt. And one of the great comforts in the Bible is that the ultimate ruler of the universe is not like that. When we think of King Ahasuerus as he is described in the book of Esther, we are reminded that the hope of the world and in each of our lives is that the king of the world is unlike the sinful and selfish rulers of this world. The highest power and authority in the whole world is good. Perfectly good in every possible way. As John puts it in 1 John 1, 5, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. One of the ways that we see and appreciate God as a perfect king is to contrast him with evil, with the evil kings and rulers of this world. We'll just consider some of the ways that the God of heaven and earth is not like King Ahasuerus. One of the key ways <clears throat> that he is not like Ahasuerus has to do with access. It's an important part of this story that access to the king was severely restricted. And the queen, even the queen, was risking her life simply approaching the king with a request. And to be sure, it's necessary that people in high places are not accessible to everyone they would not live long or they would not get much done if anyone could walk into them or up to them at any time. But how different in this way is God, the king of the world? This king is accessible to all who approach him in humility and trust. There's dangers for his enemies, but for the humble and the penitent and the trusting, <clears throat> the way is open to come before him with our requests and our burdens and our needs. And this theme of access to God is an important part of the message of the Bible in that Jesus opened the way for sinners to come into the presence of God and Jesus himself is sitting at God's right hand <coughs> the one who shares God's throne. And so we are invited in Hebrews 6, uh, sorry, Hebrews 4.16, 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, this is really quite awesome if you think about it. The one who rules over the whole universe, the one who is unlimited in wisdom, power, and glory, he is accessible to anyone who comes to him humbly and in faith. Jesus has opened the way for sinners who otherwise would be consumed in the presence of God to instead draw near to God, and all such are promised that God will draw near to them. James tells us in James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And Hebrews seven twenty five says that God is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then there is the, the whole matter of favor. A number of times Esther asked whether she has found favor in the sight of the king. That was not something she could count on. This king was fickle. And fickle means changing frequently, especially as regards one's loyalties, interests, or affection. So Esther could not know from one moment to the next whether the king was looking upon her in, with favor. But how different it is with the king, the great king over all the earth. Once he has set his favor on someone, that favor will never be removed. Psalm 84.11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And Isaiah 54.10 says, For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And the term steadfast love is a very common Old Testament word, and the point of it is that God's love and favor for his people is constant and unchanging. It's a covenant word, steadfast love is. The covenant relationship that God has with his people is a secure relationship. It is bound by oaths. It is a relationship that is secured by God's unchangeable commitment. When the Bible says that God does not change, this is what it means. Numbers 23.19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And this is part of the significance of both baptism and the Lord's Supper. Both of these sacraments confirm the covenant that God has made with us the promises that God has made to us in Christ. They are intended to confirm to us God's steadfast love, his faithfulness to his promises, the unchanging nature of his favor upon his people. What a contrast with King 
Ahasuerus. Esther did not know whether the king would show favor to her or whether he would kill her. By approaching him, she was taking her life in her hands. But our God is the opposite of fickle. His love is steadfast. We can count on it. He is unchanging. The third way that the king of the world is unlike Ahasuerus is that he is not selfish. Ahasuerus was incredibly selfish. That's why Esther had to appeal to him as carefully as she did. She could not appeal to justice because he was not just. She had to find a way to appeal to his selfishness. And so she had to hope that he was still attracted to her. Think of the whole harem apparatus that catered to his sexual desires. His fickleness meant that he ruled, he was ruled by his desires. He had tremendous power and authority, and that power and authority were used to satisfy his own lusts. And again, how different it is with God. There is a sense, of course, in which God is self-centered because he is the highest good. He is dedicated to his own glory, as he must be if he is truly good. But that does not make him selfish. God is the opposite of selfish because he is love. Both creation and redemption are overflows of God's love in creating man in his image so that we could know him and love him. God was being exceedingly generous because knowing God is the greatest possible joy and satisfaction. The beauty and the bountifulness of the creation demonstrates his generosity. The salvation is the greatest manifestation of love that is possible. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And in this is and in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. How wonderfully does that contrast between does the contrast between King Ahasuerus and the great God who reigns over all, how wonderfully does that contrast illumine the sheer goodness and beauty and generosity of God in Christ? It's because of who God is and what he is like that we can have security and peace and hope. What a reason then, then, to look to him as the foundation and the purpose of our lives. What a reason for joy to know that the king who rules over all is absolutely good, not a hint of evil, completely and utterly good. And one of the ways in which that goodness expresses itself is in him providing a way for sinful people Uh, who are not good, to be made good through the saving work of Jesus Christ. By nature, we are more like King Ahasuerus than we are like God. We deserve eternal condemnation, just as he did. 
But in his goodness, God made a way for sinners to be saved. He did it at great cost to himself. He gave his beloved son to suffer and to die for enemies. And he chose out of the whole human race a people to deliver from their sins by changing their hearts, by showing them their sin and their need, by opening their eyes to his love and grace in Christ, by drawing them to Jesus, giving them faith and a willingness to repent, and by gradually conforming them to become good as he is good and as Jesus is good. So come to this God. Come to the Savior that he has provided. Exult in their goodness and love and reliability and know that those who rest in him are secure in his love and favor for Jesus' sake. And then there's Haman. He got what was coming to him. The fact that he was hanged on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai, that was justice. The king who condemned him was not just in himself, but in this case, by the providence of God, he did mete out justice to Haman. And Haman is a warning for us. He is an illustration of what Paul writes (coughs) in Galatians 6-7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Haman reaped what he had sown. And so will everyone who does not believe in Jesus. Those who believe in Jesus, they do not reap what they have sown because Jesus reaped the penalty that we have deserved. But for those who reject Jesus they will reap what they have sown. Like Haman, they will receive what they deserve unless they repent and flee to Jesus. Haman reminds us that those who reject God and live as they please will get what they deserve in the end. But God saved the Jewish people from Haman's evil plan because he had chosen them, the Jewish people, to be the people from whom our Lord Jesus would be born. And that Jesus has provided a way for sinners to be saved. God sent Jesus that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the way in which You reveal yourself in your word in all kinds of different ways. Here we have seen something of your providence as you work not only through circumstances that seem to be, um, uh, that seem to come about by chance, but also through the deliberate and thoughtful actions of your people. You work in various ways to accomplish your ends, and we are grateful for that. Lord, we're grateful for the contrast between Haman and you. Lord, there are many different ways for us to grow in our knowledge of you and to have a deeper understanding of it. And this is one of them when we compare an evil man with you, an evil king with you, and 
see where he is or his faults compare with your perfections. And we are so glad that you are the king who reigns over all, that you are king, that you have chosen us, and that you are absolutely good in all your ways, that you are gracious and merciful, that you are true to your word, that you are the very opposite of fickle, and that in a relationship with you we have absolute security in this life and for the life to come. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, for revealing yourself to us, for your wonderful word, and for your work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.